0: Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. Um, we will be reading the close of Luke chapter 1, Zechariah's prophecy, beginning at verse 67 and reading to the end of the chapter. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 67. This is the prophecy of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. And this is God's Word. And it reads, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The child grew, and he became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This morning, our intention is to continue to dwell upon the Christmas story, and to, to look at one overlooked feature of the infancy narrative. So, have to put it out front and be honest. Apologies if you've came here expecting Henry's 10 top tips of how to keep a New Year's resolution. We're not quite getting that this morning. We're going to be thinking about something a little bit different and probably more serious and helpful. So let me start with a, a question. And you can answer internally. I wonder what image or metaphor our analogy, our our word springs to your mind first when you think of Christmas. When you you start to think of of Christmas, I wonder what's the first sort of picture that comes into your mind, or, or a metaphor, or a word, or an analogy, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Maybe for many of us we may think of, of a star, we may think of a star shining bright in the sky, guiding the wise man. Maybe we think of the idea and the theme of of hope. This is such a, a hopeful time of year. The the hope of the world has come into the world. We might think of, of joy, I think of, of celebration, great gladness. Or we may just very simply think of, of a baby in a manger. might think of, of the idea of, of the Word that is Jesus God becoming flesh. And they're all wonderful ideas that, that populate our minds, aren't they? But probably and arguably the, the two most meaningful metaphors around Christmas, and actually throughout the, the whole of the Bible, is the idea of light and darkness. And it's a a striking use of language that immediately hits us, doesn't it? Because immediately we know that that light triumphs over darkness. And we think about the the birth narratives, and and they're just solely recorded in two of the four Gospels, in in Matthew and in Luke's Gospel. But one of the other Gospel writers, John, he begins probably in the, in the most captivating way of starting his gospel. And he summarizes the birth of, of Jesus wonderfully. And as he starts off in John 1, he, he says these words, In him, that is Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. The life, the idea of, of Jesus being like taking breath for the first time. And he, even as a child, was light. He was the light of man, And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus then, John, explicitly calls Jesus the light. 2,000 years ago, in that city of David, something happened, something significant occurred. What the Bible tells us is that the light of men Arrived, and life has not been the same for any single human being since. All of our lives have been dramatically altered or shaped by the birth of this baby boy. And often we don't even realize it. Christmas is light coming into the world. However, the, the, the idea of light dawning over all Jerusalem. It wasn't an invention concocted by even the gospel writer John, but it was firmly etched in Jewish history. In fact, they, the Jews, had been eagerly waiting for for this light to dawn. And 700 years prior to that first Christmas, the prophet Isaiah proclaimed these just incredibly prolific words, words that we have been thinking about in the run up to Christmas in the month of December Isaiah 9 2 the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone fast forward to some months before the birth of Jesus. And we find an elderly, devout Jewish priest and he's prophesying to a similar effect in words we've already read. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit on us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace even though 700 years had passed, the same anticipation was present. Zechariah and many others were waiting for this light to dawn. It's safe to say this wait had been long. 700 years is quite long, but it was long. It felt very long for him and for the people. The darkness they had experienced was deep. It was heavy. Zechariah, he first appears on the scene at the beginning of Luke's gospel, right at the beginning of chapter 1. And he's, we find him on the rounds in the temple. But his, his priestly shift that day well, was far from ordinary. He had a divine appointment with the, the angel Gabriel. But Zachariah, as the Bible tells us, is, is a righteous, faithful man, man surprisingly demonstrates a, a lack of faith in the angel's message to him. He struck both mute and death until the time would pass when the things the angels spoke about would come to be. And here we find him with his, his voice regathered, praising God. His, his disbelief has vanquished. His baby boy is born. His name, John, the, the giver of grace. And filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah offers this enlightening hymn of praise, often called the Benedictus. Zechariah's song Zechariah's prophetic song, as we've read it, can be split into really two sections, 68 to 75 and then 76 to 79. On the first section, 68 to 75, it's a section that is just saturated with praise to God. And it really is quite remarkable. We sort of have to take ourselves and sort of catapult ourselves back to the, the time where we find this being read. It's incredible to find these words uttered by Zachariah, a man who has been made mute by God for a whole nine months with his very first words, his first chance to be audible, for people to, to actually hear what he has to say. What does he decide to do? But he decides to offer praise to the one he has made him mute. He decides to, to praise God. How many other temptations would have been in Zachariah's mind? I don't know of, of different things he wanted to say. This is what he first decides to say. Not to condemn or to throw verbal s- but to praise and within this first section, I just want to look at it through, through two simple lenses and just two, two uh, words or phrases beginning with the letter H. I want to think of this this horn of salvation, but also about history. This horn of salvation, which you'll see is referenced in verse 69. And I want us to note something very significant as, as Zacharias starts this off, starts this, this prophecy, this song. Is that Zacharias starts and speaks in the past tense in the first couple of verses. Read with me verse 68 and 69. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. It's littered with, with he has. But yet, the events Zachariah speaks of, well, have they happened? Has, has God fully redeemed his people? Has he raised up this, this horn of, of salvation from this house of, of David? Well, the answer is no. But a better answer would be not yet. Even though this is a, a prophetic message from Zechariah, that these events have not taken place, he is so utterly assured and confident of the Lord's provision of a Savior. In his mind, the, the great event long awaited for centuries has already happened. Why can he be so assured? Why can Zechariah have such confidence? Well, he can trust the one who has uttered these promises. Had God failed to be faithful in the past? Had he failed to deliver on a promise? Zechariah knew the answer to that. No, he had not. And he wasn't in the business of doing that. He wasn't going to start that now. And again, to think of the, the context of this, just think of what has occurred to this elderly man the angel of the Lord confirmed to him that he and his wife would, would have a, a child in their advanced years. And what has just literally happened? They have had this child. And it really teaches us a very simple but incredibly valuable lesson. That whenever the, the Lord, as we read in his word, makes promises to us, we, as his people, can be confident that he will. Comes through and will deliver. And in one sense, there's no greater example of, of this time of year, and that is uh, of Christmas. That myriad of, of Old Testament prophecies recorded, hundreds of, and even thousands of years previous. And What we see in the manger scene is, is the God of, of heaven and earth sticking to his word. Yes, we could all do with a dose of, of Zachariah's faith. But we find it that it is rooted it's not upon his, his fleeting emotions or his current circumstances, but it's upon what God has said and done. But what is this Redeemer to be like? This raised horn of salvation that's fo- to be found in the house of the, his servant David? Well, it speaks of, of one who is strong. It speaks of the, the strength and the, the lineage of one that is to come. It speaks of, of salvation that is offered that will be strong and mighty, like the horns of an ox. And his family descent couldn't be more powerful in a, in a Jewish mind than that of, of the great King David. This is going to be a significant individual. The the image of of the of the horn points to the one of the one to come is it represents one that will be embroiled in invokes in our in our mind that this one to come would not necessarily have it easy that he would be infused in difficult conflicts time and time again that his path would not be easy but would be lined with with trouble. And suffering but yet he would prevail and that is the the life map that we clearly see of the suffering servant Jesus his path of, of faithfulness to, to redeem all mankind was marked constantly with pain and turmoil often as we think about about Jesus and with the, the, the wonder of hindsight, we, we, we sometimes look and read of the stories and there's a, a level of inevitability with us as we are very accustomed and familiar. I you know that's my temptation. We look back and we see Jesus doing incredible things and there's just a subtle thought in our minds that goes, well, of course... Of course Jesus is going to do it. Of course Jesus is going to do the good thing. Of course Jesus is going to do the loving thing. Of course Jesus isn't going to respond angrily. Of course Jesus is going to be victorious. And there's a, there's a, there's a goodness that we have, maybe that, that tendency to think that, but often that can maybe lean too much. We just think that this was very plain sailing and, and easy for Jesus, that the idea of living this life and what he did and ultimately what he accomplished at the cross was was simple. it was easy. it was it was straightforward for Jesus. Well, he's God, surely it was it was easy for him. And it's very tempting to have those thoughts. But as we think of Jesus, we think of one who is powerful and strong, but did not have it easy. and it was far from a comfortable bed of roses. At his chief battle at the cross, he takes on the great enemy of death. And though for a moment it seems like death has won, Jesus is victorious. Jesus wins. We must rid our mind of an often caricatured, quiet, socially polite version of Jesus. As Christians, we have a strong, we have a powerful, we have a good and righteous Savior who has taken on death and has won and offers that salvation to us. Second, I want us to notice the, the explicit historical references. Quite quickly, just thinking about this, the the, the references throughout this prophecy of, of how God spoke through the prophets and the covenants he has made through, through Abraham and David. There's actually 30 direct Old Testament references or allusions that are contained within Zechariah's prophecy. Don't worry, we're not going to go through all 30. Um, I couldn't find all 30 if you give me £100,000, but they're there. I've been told, some commentator told me, he's far smarter than me. But as we think about that, well, we really we shouldn't expect anything less from Zechariah. A man who, who is a temple priest who would have known the scriptures and now, as we have read, is filled with the Holy Spirit. State in Jewish religion. And this is such a, a far cry from some sort of sentimental, quasi-spiritual prediction being made, made here. You know, one of the immediate impressions, I wonder if you had the same as you read that, there's nothing random, there's nothing vague about this prophecy, this prediction, this this song of Zechariah. It's concrete, it's rooted in what God has said, and it honors him above all. And as we, as we think about that and just the, the general idea of the, the historicity of, of the events and the ideas and the references that, that Zachariah is alluding to and making, surely that has an overwhelming effect on us. That this isn't just pure random. This just hasn't been made up by Zechariah. This isn't Zechariah that he's just he hasn't spoke for nine months and he sort of just goes off the, the handle and starts is screaming and ranting. These are far from that. But what we see is, is the goodness of our God. The goodness of our God giving us grace to see how his wonderful plan of redemption is being unfolded. You know, this, this hymn undergirds the, the coming of Jesus and of John and Zechariah's prophecy reinforces it. It summarizes the, the biblical outline of, of God holding to his, his holy covenant with Abraham that, that a saviour would come. That that saviour would come from the line of David foretold by the the predecessors of John the Baptist, the prophets, That there would be one who would specifically come to be be tasked as the official forerunner. Doesn't this put steel in the veins of our faith? As we see the, the scarlet thread of God's redemptive plan weaving through as revealed by Zechariah. As the, as the first section focuses on God and, and this one who would be a horn of salvation, the second ses- section is is concentrated upon Zechariah's little baby boy. And he gets the order right, doesn't he? As influential as his son will be, he'll only be the forerunner of the one to come. One much much greater, the one that he will call the, the most high. Zachariah's boy, who the angel of the Lord said would would turn many of the children of Israel to their gods, that he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Just think about this for Zachariah. This is his boy. His boy is going to be the one that's going to break this silence. You know, Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth, they had been part of a, a faithful cohort They had been waiting just in eager anticipation for God to speak. And more specifically, for God to send. But Zechariah's boy, the one John, the one of grace, he's going to go before that one. He's going to break the silence, but he's going to be part of breaking the darkness. Light was finally dawning on the people of Israel. And Zechariah's outburst of, of prophetic praise, it's the first public proclamation of God's redeeming plan for 400 years. It's never a good feeling being caught in darkness, is it? There's probably like a few moments where we sort of try to find, ourse- find ourselves, we try to remain calm. But if we continue to remain in darkness, it's not long until we get a little bit scared, we worry, we actually start to forget where we are, or maybe we think where we are, but then we take one wrong step and we realise, well, we definitely did not know where we were. But it's one of the most amazing and relieving feelings when we finally catch a ray of light are we find with light switches. They're both the same. And you can sense safety and freedom whenever light breaks the darkness. You can see. Your anxiety is now no more as the light bursts through. And if we're able to get that, that image or recall that feeling into our minds. Then just think of how these final words of Zachariah's prophecy would have sounded like. I've already read them. Let's read them again. In verse 78. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is what they had been dreaming of. All God's people wanted was light something to disrupt the deep darkness that they had found themselves in. 400 years of silence filled with oppression. And You can begin to understand why, why many faithful Jews have started to jump to conclusions. What type of darkness is Zechariah referring to? Is there a reference to Political oppression as they felt under the regime of the Romans and many other tyran- ty- tyrannical empires before was it a darkness because of just a general lack of, of prosperity and, and lack of freedom? Well no just like Isaiah had spoke seven hundred years previously, the people had been had been walking in darkness, but this was more than just a mere physical darkness, but with something far more severe. A spiritual darkness, a, a darkness that they see good, that labels wrong and evil as good and righteous. A cancer to the soul, and one that has affected not just them, but us and the whole human race and has spread to all. You know, our, our sinful state leaves us. In darkness. It's interesting. I wonder if you've before. Isaiah talks about the people walking in darkness. And we get to Zechariah, and it's for those who sit in darkness. You know, the idea of sitting, as you're all doing now. You know, you're static. You know, and often once we think of someone who's sitting, we think of someone maybe who has given up, who's just planted themselves on the ground. They're helpless. And it's the, the idea of almost that they've just decided to just accept the darkness. And some had. And often we as well. We just sit in the darkness of our lives. And ultimately as that reminds us this will lead to uh, an eternal darkness the shadow of death that is separation from God in a very real place called hell here's the the wonderful but God moment who is, is rich in mercy our God is not the one who leaves us to to wallow in the darkness as much as we deserve that as much as that would have been he would have been totally right to have done that. He is the one that, that steps in, that, that breaks the darkness. The the I, what wonderful imagery. The the idea of the, the sunrise visiting God's people. It's the, the first glimpse of sun, the first ray on a wonderful morning that comes upon to it comes and hits the faces of God's people. That this is God's light coming to bring hope. That this light is is offered to all and to everyone. And like those two very significant things, it does two things. It reveals and it guides. You know, we kind of had this experience a few weeks ago, but if you've been to the cinema ever in your life, there's always that moment as the movie ends and you're in darkness and the lights switch on and you to stand up or you try to stand up because you're stuck to the seat and you look down and you're just utterly kicked in popcorn or you realise, you didn't know where those bags of Maltesers have went and you realise they've just melted all the way down you or your children or and you just look around yourself and it's just mess everywhere, I, you could not pay me to work in a cinema, it'd be a disaster but you didn't notice any of that stuff whenever the movie was going and the lights were off. The light of God reveals. It reveals our, our mess. It reveals our sin in a far more serious fashion than that of the lights being switched on at the end of a movie. When we look to God and we see His perfection and compare it to ourselves, we know, we know, we have not matched us, matched up. But it's always a daunting experience for light to shine upon our lives, isn't it? I'm not talking about physical light, I'm looking at the, the piercing light of, light of God and His Word upon our lives. There's fear that comes with it. And we may fear that we may have to admit our wrongs or that we maybe are more sinful, we're uh, we're far worse than maybe we first expected. Maybe we fear others finding out or or knowing more of the deep darkness of our own lives. But we have to be humble and we have to admit that we need it. We need the piercing, bright light of God to reveal the depths of our darkness and our depravity. We need it so that we can live in light, that we can live in reality, that we can know our condition. But God's light also guides. As we see at the end of verse 79, he will guide our feet into the way of peace. He is, as our creator, the one of ultimate truth and goodness. He will direct our paths and this just shows the, the grace of our god he, he does not shine a light and then tells us well you know just go on and get on with it you know leads us to our own devices right i've turned the lights on all the best our god is not into that business he shines the light and it's almost as if the idea that's being conveyed is he turns the lights on and he takes us by the hand and he leads us And his Son has supremely shown us how to live in the light, as he is the very light, the light that we need. And many of us, we may sit here, and even in the back of our minds, we wouldn't even want to admit we may have our doubts and our frustrations about Christianity. And many of that might be based on the experiences with other Christians. or we may look at history gone by and get annoyed by that. And I don't want to mean to undermine any of those. But the Christian faith is always and centrally based off of one. One who came and who lived perfectly. And when we keep our focus, when we look at the life of Jesus Christ, none of us, none of us cannot be left with arms folded and un impressed. Every moment we look at Jesus, it's hearkening back to what I was saying, we look at the life of Jesus and there's almost this idea of inevitability. Of course Jesus is going to do the loving and good thing. Of course he's going to choose the sacrificial one. Of course he's going to look out for the the poor and the marginal. Time and time again, we look at the life of Jesus and he does everything that we would love to do ourselves but we know we cannot we look at the life of Jesus and we cannot be just left unimpressed we have to be impressed here is one who has been truly perfect who has been truly loving and good every single moment of his entire life and he lives how we should all live because he is the light the light of heaven We are drawn to his light. And surely that makes us want the change. Zechariah makes references to this in seventy four and seventy five. We've been delivered out of the hands of our, our great enemy, the enemy of death and of Satan, so that we may serve our Redeemer without fear, but in holiness and righteousness for the rest of our days. As we start a new year, it's very tempting, isn't it, to really try to skip past Christmas. Sometimes it's a difficult time for many of us, for many reasons. But often we start to worry about the pressures of a new year, returning to work and maybe even just opening up the the email tab to see how many messages you have to reply to, or just jobs and tasks and worries that may press on. But maybe we still feel like we are in the pits of darkness. Possibly that may be because you know in the depths of your heart that spiritually speaking that you are, you still remain in your sin and outside of the light of Christ. And indeed the the night before the, the sunrise of Jesus' birth that The days have been long and dark. But here's grace. Here's the free invitation from God. The light had dawned 2,000 years ago. His invitation for us all is to come into His light and let Him guide us into His peace. Amen. Amen. Let's pray.